SLU International Business Now, Conversations That Matter, is a podcast developed by the Boeing Institute of International Business in St. Louis University's Chaffetz School of Business. Special thanks to founder Dr. Sung Kim for his grant to support the launch of this podcast. Welcome to the second part of our conversations on Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. I am Naresh Bansal, Professor and Chair of Finance Department at Chaffetz School of Business at St. Louis University. I am joined with my colleague, Professor Norman Guo. Norman and I will be the co-host in this conversation. Our speaker is Brian Dixon, the president of the Chain Capital. As we continue with the second part of our fascinating conversation on Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. Thank you so much. I appreciate you having me today. Before we get started today, I do need to note that Off the Chain Capital is a registered investment advisor with the SEC. So there's a compliance disclosure that I need to state before we start the conversation. Certain information set forth in our discussion today is going to contain forward-looking information. So these statements are provided to allow your audience the opportunity to understand management's beliefs and opinions in respect of the future so that they may use such beliefs and opinions as one factor in understanding the content. These statements are not guarantees of future performance, and undue reliance should not be placed on them. And such forward-looking statements necessarily involve known and unknown risks and uncertainties, which may cause actual performance and financial results in future periods to differ materially from any projections of future performance or result expressed or implied by such forward-looking statements. Although forward-looking statements contained in this presentation are based upon the management of the company, what they believe to be reasonable assumptions, there can be no assurance that forward-looking statements will prove to be accurate, as actual results in future events could differ materially from those anticipated in such statements. The company undertakes no obligation to update forward-looking statements if circumstances or management's estimates or opinions should change, except as required by applicable securities laws. And I also want to note that digital assets contain a high degree of risk and uncertainty. Brian, I would like to discuss the role of Bitcoin for corporations. We know people may hold Bitcoins for investment. Why do companies hold Bitcoin or cryptocurrency? I know your company provides crypto consulting services to corporations. What can crypto do for a company? Sure. So the big thing that we're seeing right now in terms of corporations is buying and holding digital assets as part of their treasury reserve strategy. So every company as they build their value over time, especially public corporations, they take the free cash flow they generate from their profits and they look to invest in it in different types of things as part of their treasury um, reserve strategy. And so what we're seeing today is there's more and more companies that are waking up to the fact that they can't hold cash for very long as part of their treasury because it's losing its value. Fiat cash is melting like an ice cube. And so they have to figure out Where can we invest and deploy this capital to maintain and grow its value over time? Now, in terms of Bitcoin for corporations, the pioneer who began to develop a Bitcoin-focused strategy was Michael Saylor, who is the CEO of MicroStrategy, which is a public company for many years. MicroStrategy, the business, develops business intelligence and analytics software. So they're very successful in that business model. They generate probably 50 to 100 million and profits a year. So he tasked his team a few years ago, said, we got all this cash, 
The central banks are printing too much money. Our cash is losing value. Where can we continue to invest our capital so we can maintain or grow its value over time? And so his team went out and researched every single asset class they could. Real estate, stocks, bonds, municipal treasuries, all sorts of different things. And what they came back with was that there is not a single asset that we think can provide a better ROI into the future than Bitcoin. So they ended up doing going down a very deep diligence path to try to understand this. They had to get buy-in from the board of directors. They had to create cybersecurity controls around this. They had to create custody controls, audit, risk management, um, shareholder, all these different angles that they had to look at before they made an affirmative decision to do this and start buying Bitcoin with their cash. So once they made a firm decision to do this, that they were going to begin accumulating Bitcoin as part of their treasury reserve strategy, they did exactly that. They started to take their cash. They did a, a partnership with Coinbase, which is the largest cryptocurrency exchange in the United States um, on their institutional side of their business. And they began to buy Bitcoin. And they didn't announce this until after it was done because they wanted to make sure they could maintain a good Bitcoin price as they purchased and so as they built their first position in Bitcoin, then they did their press releases around it, announcing what their strategy was. And he basically explained that the reason they did that is because they believe Bitcoin is going to be the most asymmetric upside asset for the next 10 to 20 years, without a doubt, over any other asset in the world. And this is what's interesting about MicroStrategy. Michael Saylor, the CEO, he is a brilliant individual, aerospace engineer, started this company right out of college. And he was very early on to understanding scarce digital assets, because when the internet was very early on, there was only a couple hundred million people using it. Michael recognized that if you could accumulate domain names, which is a scarce internet asset, right? There's only one Coca-Cola.com and there's only one McDonald's.com. If you could accumulate domain names that will be much more valuable in the future, you could probably generate a good ROI on that. So what he did back when the internet only had a couple hundred million people using it is he started to buy very common domain names that he thought were going to be in high demand in the future. So things like hope.com, voice.com, change.com. So he bought these different domains. And a great example is what happened with voice.com because he knew that when there was a couple hundred million people using the internet, it wasn't super valuable. But when there's billions of people using the internet, those domain names be very valuable, scarce digital asset. He bought voice.com 25 years ago for around $15 and sold it in 2021 for $30 million because he was patient and recognized that it was a scarce digital asset. That was the same light bulb that went off for him when he began to understand Bitcoin. 21 million Bitcoin will ever be created, scarce digital asset. A couple hundred million people are using the Bitcoin network today. But when there's billions of people using it, Bitcoin is going to be worth significantly more in the future than what it is today. And so when him and his team began to understand that, they started to accumulate Bitcoin. Now, they've bought billions and billions of dollars worth of Bitcoin that's gone up and down and up and down. And just recently, he decided to leave MicroStrategy in the CEO role. And he's now the executive chairman of the company. So he can continue dedicating 100% of his as energy towards the Bitcoin strategy and continuing the Bitcoin ecosystem. What Michael did in 2021 was he hosted a conference that was hosted by MicroStrategy 
called Bitcoin for corporations. And I think there was over 3,000 corporations around the world that attended. And what he did was he gave interviews and video content and digital materials where he published his playbook for exactly what he did with MicroStrategy to accumulate Bitcoin as part of their treasury reserve. And then they, they hosted the, con- the online conference again this year and hit an even larger audience. So there's more and more corporations that are getting interested in the strategy and they want to take a percentage of their treasury portfolio to acquire Bitcoin because they see it as this new digital gold that will increase in value over time. And so, you know, some corporations have other types of digital assets beyond Bitcoin. I believe the main reason that most of them are buying them is for the return on investment opportunity. They think the asset will be worth more in the future and will be able to outperform other assets. So Bitcoin today is the most common crypto asset that we're seeing corporations add to their balance sheet. But we haven't even scraped the surface for where that's going to go in the future. And this is why. Right now, Bitcoin is characterized as an intangible asset by FASB, the Financial Accounting Standards Board, who writes the rules for gap accounting. So this is what that means. If you're a public company and you buy Bitcoin and Bitcoin goes up in value, you cannot mark that appreciation up on your books. But if Bitcoin goes down in value, you have to mark the depreciation against your earnings. So it hurts you on your quarterly reports if that occurs. FASB announced, I believe it was in November of last year, that they are going to be revising the characterization rule for Bitcoin. So we don't know what they're going to revise it to yet, but my assumption would be that Bitcoin will be revised in terms of gap accounting from an intangible asset to something to the likes of an investment asset. And what that will mean is if they do that, you invest in Bitcoin as a public company, you'll get to market when Bitcoin goes up. So it'll directly show performance boost on your books, and it won't only damage you if it goes down. You'll be able to show the appreciation of Bitcoin as well. When that occurs, my projection is that somewhere between $700 billion to a $1 trillion of public corporation treasury reserve capital will flow into Bitcoin in a very short period of time. Because we know that public companies are keeping a very close eye on this rule And I would like to think that a lot of them probably already have the institutional infrastructure set up to do the Bitcoin purchases, like the ones that are interested in this strategy. They're just waiting on this rule to change. So whenever FASB changes this rule and Bitcoin is more friendly for a public company to add it to its balance sheet, I think we're going to see a huge amount of institutional inflows of capital specifically into Bitcoin. Thanks, Brian. So now let's focus on the role of Bitcoin in international business. There is an accelerated shift toward digital payments and the use of digital currency. How does Bitcoin or cryptocurrency different from the traditional fiat currency in global payment? Yeah, so the traditional fiat system of currency is a decided upon supply by a group of individuals that are sitting around an oval table, you know, with the central bank or federal reserves around the world that will then create the monetary policy. They get to elect when they go to their computer and hit control P to print more money. And when that happens, it's damaging. It's damaging to society. It creates inflation and our purchasing power decreases. That's one of the things. Also, fiat currency is also how wars are financed around the world. There's a lot of money that gets printed for the military industrial complex and Wars are based around, you know, banks and, and central banks financing both sides of the wars all throughout history. 
So there's actually a lot of freedom related issues when, it, when you get down into the meat of fiat currency and a lot of harm that it creates the way that it could be manipulated and devalued and just printed whatever they choose. When you look at Bitcoin, and I want to, in your question, you asked about Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. So I'm going to use Bitcoin as an example because all these other cryptos have different use cases. Some of them are trying to be payment mechanisms with privacy and other things like that. But I'm going to focus on Bitcoin for this argument just for now. Bitcoin is not created by any central party or controlled, right? It's created through a system called mining. And when you mine Bitcoin, what's occurring is you have a system of computers that are hardware devices that have very specific computer chips in them called ASIC chips. And these ASIC chips all day long de de deploy computing power to try to solve these advanced algorithmic math problems. And when they solve the problem, you're rewarded in Bitcoin. So you will mine, you will mine that new Bitcoin that'll get issued into circulation and you'll get it and you'll get to decide where it goes to. Um, you can sell it to an exchange. You can keep it on your balance sheet. A lot of the Bitcoin mining companies that today the powerhouses in the space are huge operations. They have long scale contracts with utility providers where they're getting energy at fixed rates that's very cheap that makes Bitcoin mining profitable. And they're mining Bitcoin 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Okay. So this is how you create Bitcoin. When you really break it down and you look at it, it's taking electrical energy and it's converting it into digital monetary value because these mining machines are powered by electrical energy. And then when it mines the Bitcoin and solves the algorithms, it's transmuting that electrical energy into a digital monetary network, which is what Bitcoin is. The reason it's so different than traditional fiat currency is because it's non-censorable. And it's non-governable by the people that govern fiat currency, that they could just create and choose to print more when they want to. Bitcoin has that finite supply, like we've discussed, of 21 million. And because of that, you can't create more of them out of thin air. And they're on a supply schedule where we know exactly how much Bitcoin will be created every 10 minutes. And we know that the last Bitcoin will be mined in the year 2140. And so it's a, it's a completely predictable schedule and it's opening the opportunity where we can have one singular global monetary standard that's free from the interference of government and central bank cartels. And that is so powerful because right now, if I want to go from the United States to Mexico, right, you have to exchange your currency. Well, I mean, you, you can do credit card processing, but there's still foreign transaction fees. But if you're going to pay in cash, I've got to go to a currency exchange. I've got to take U.S. dollars and get into Mexican pesos. And like it's a whole process, right? We're operating on all these segmented standards around the world. Um, the U.S. dollar today is the kind of the global reserve currency for most of the world, but it's losing its favor in that very quickly because we live in a digital world today, a digital economy. It's significantly easier for me to go anywhere in the world and be able to spend Bitcoin and not have to worry about currency exchange and things of that nature than it is to spend dollars or, or use credit card transactions where you're getting hit with these additional fees. So it's really opening the door for us to have a singular monetary network that's governed by mathematics and not individuals. Individuals are corrupted and can be corrupted, whereas mathematics, if we know exactly it's going to do what it's going to say it's going to do, right? And so that's one of the most unique things. It's a monetary system governed by mathematics. And what we're reaching today just like happened in the past where we had the separation of church and state, today we're having the separation of money and state. 
It's not easy. Back when church and state was separated, that was a very big deal. It was not a fast process. There was a lot of turmoil. There was a lot of bad things that occurred around the world when that happened. And there was a lot of fights to get through that time period. And that's what we're experiencing right now. There are currency wars that are going on because more and more people are using Bitcoin and less and less people are using the the US dollar and other fiat currencies. And as that continues to happen over time, the central banks and governments don't want to lose control of the global monopoly they have on money printing, right? That's a very powerful thing. So they're going to fight tooth and nail to try to keep that power. But the thing is, you can't ban Bitcoin. It's impossible. And the reason it's impossible is because it's open source internet protocol software that anybody in the world can access. If you have an internet connection, you can access Bitcoin. And it is just this really interesting mechanic that's occurring because because of that, the only way to shut off Bitcoin is to turn off the telecommunications network or shut down the energy grid, which we know is not gonna happen because that would just create turmoil within society. So because of that, since it's open source, since you can anybody can download a Bitcoin wallet on their phone or computer at any time and transact in Bitcoin, and you don't have to get approval from anybody, that's what makes it so powerful. It, Bitcoin is really freedom technology when you think about it, because it's creating freedom, more streamlined opportunity to transact in a global nature around the world digitally. And it's just preparing us for the future of what I believe our global economy will look like. Thanks, Brian. So from your explanation, I do see the benefits of Bitcoin in global payment. Ideally, companies can transact with Bitcoins anytime without bank systems, making the transaction cheaper and more efficient than traditional alternatives. But right now, it seems that Bitcoin is not widely used in international business. What's the challenge facing Bitcoin now as a global payment method? So the biggest challenge today is we're going through the fight phase, the currency fight phase right now. And because of that, there's regulatory challenges with Bitcoin and other digital assets in terms of how they're characterized and taxed, which prevents people from wanting to use them as a payment mechanism. And so I'll give you an example. In the United States, Bitcoin is viewed as digital property. So if I buy Bitcoin and I sell Bitcoin, I have a taxable implication there. It could be a gain. It could be a loss, right? And that's an issue that because if I go buy a cup of coffee in the United States with Bitcoin and I bought that Bitcoin at 20,000 and then by the time I bought that cup of coffee, Bitcoin was worth 24,000. I'm going to have a capital gains taxable implication for buying that cup of coffee because the value was more. Now that's not reasonable, right? Like because of that tax characterization, That's why nobody is spending Bitcoin like they could be if Bitcoin was characterized as currency or legal tender. We're seeing other countries around the world, largely ones that are underdeveloped and have suffered extremely from hyper uh, hyper, uh, inflation, excuse me. And they're starting to pass new laws making Bitcoin legal tender. Last year, El Salvador was the first country to do so. They passed a law making Bitcoin, along with the US dollar, their legal currency. So what they've done is they launched an app that got rolled out to the millions of people in their society where they can go on, they can transact and accumulate Bitcoin, and now they can go to all their vendors around the country. And instead of paying for it with a card or with U.S. dollar, they can send Bitcoin to pay for their groceries or a cup of coffee or gas or whatever that is. It has grown incredibly fast. I think over 50% of their country is now using Bitcoin as their legal tender. 
And we're starting to see that pop up more in other areas. There's other smaller countries that have passed these laws as well. I think the largest country that I've seen that has a bill before Congress to make Bitcoin legal tender is Brazil. I think Brazil's got about 215 million people in their country. And so if that passed, that would be a really big deal because that's a very large sized country that would be transacting in Bitcoin now. I think that's what we're going to see. We're going to see the countries around the world that have suffered most from the devaluation of their currency by the excessive money printing. They're going to opt out of the fiat standard faster and into a Bitcoin monetary standard faster. Then over time, the larger countries that have Bitcoin characterized as property where there's a taxable implication, they're eventually going to be forced to opt into a Bitcoin monetary standard because everybody else is going to be using it. So they're going to elect to do so. It's going to take time. I think this is a much longer process than people realize, but I do think we're seeing tremendous acceleration and adoption of Bitcoin. And I think over the next three, five, seven years, we're just going to see a tremendous increase in the amount of countries around the world that are operating on a Bitcoin monetary standard. The challenge right now is that not only do we have those tax implication issues, we also have very powerful organizations around the world that are fighting to slow down the adoption of Bitcoin. And I'll give you a couple examples. The United States government back in, I think it was 2013, when Bitcoin went through one of its bull cycles and it went from a couple hundred dollars up to about $1,300 before it dropped back down. The U.S. government held congressional hearings at that time to decide if they should try to ban Bitcoin. In those congressional hearings, they found out that they couldn't. One, because Bitcoin's open source software, so you can't shut it down. It's global, it's decentralized. You can't, there's no person that can just turn the Bitcoin switch off. So that, that was one of the reasons. Another reason is that in 1995, there was a court case called Bernstein versus the Supreme Court, where a group of individuals in the military developed a piece of open source cryptography software, which is exactly what Bitcoin is, open source cryptography software. Their, their software was for a different use case for something else, but they created the software. They tried to export that software out of the military to start a business out of it. The Department of Justice and the military stepped in and sued them and said, this was developed in the military. This is our IP. You can't do that. And they fought back and said, no, this is open source internet protocol software. Anybody can use it. We can go start a business with it if we choose. It went all the way to the Supreme Court. And what was decided by the Supreme Court judges is that computer code is language. And it's protected under the First Amendment under freedom of speech. So they cannot, the United States cannot ban these individuals from creating a company. In 2013, during the United States congressional hearings around Bitcoin, this court case came up. And they said, we actually already have a legal precedent around open source cryptography software. So we can't ban Bitcoin. So what did the U.S. government do instead? They tried to slow down adoption. And here's how they've done that. They've launched coordinated attacks around Bitcoin saying it's being used for illicit or nefarious activity, which is false. Blockchain analytics firms have discovered that less than 0.34% of all Bitcoin transactions are used for illicit activity. And if you are a criminal using Bitcoin, you're not a very sophisticated one because every transaction is public. And the NSA and CIA and FBI and Department of Justice, they have huge teams that monitor these blockchain networks 24 hours a day that are trying to identify illicit activity or terrorist financing or things of that nature. So if you're a criminal using Bitcoin, you're not a very smart one. So that's one of the things they tried to do. Another thing they did was they began to brand Bitcoin 
as being terrible for the environment, using excessive energy, and that it can never be sustainable because Bitcoin uses more energy than a small country in terms of the Bitcoin mining process. Well, this is completely false. Another thing that uses more energy than a small country is putting up Christmas lights every year. But you don't see the United States trying to cancel Christmas, right? So this is just an argument that was pushed out in the media to try to persuade people. And it was it's really just propaganda when you get down to it. Because if you look at the Bitcoin mining industry, Bitcoin mining globally uses one-tenth of one percent of the world's energy. It is nominal relative to all the other things. And we're really at this point in our economy globally today where we have all these different ESG-related arguments, and we've almost reached this point where using energy is branded as being bad. That's not the case at all. We use energy for everything, as long as that energy's outcome is something that creates value, right? Like using energy to get on a plane and fly from one state to another state is a valuable use of energy because it shrinks your timeline to get there, right? Using that same amount of energy on a bicycle is going to take you five days to get there, right? So there's you got to think about how energy is being used. And when you look at Bitcoin, in my opinion, it's one of the most unique and efficient uses of energy that's ever been created because you're taking electrical energy and transmuting it into a new digital monetary open network that can be used by the whole world. And when you break down renewable and green energy that's being used in the Bitcoin space, 54% of all Bitcoin mining operations are using renewable energy, which is a higher renewable fuel mix makeup than any other industry in the world. And Bitcoin is even sparking innovations in renewable energy that we didn't even know were possible before. As an example, um, with natural gas, when you have excess natural gas with energy, you have to do a process called flaring to get rid of that natural gas. It's terrible for the environment. There's companies that have created things where you can actually flare natural gas into that Bitcoin miner to then use it to mine Bitcoin and redirect that energy that otherwise would just be wasted. So, you know, those things are like the, the energy argument, the criminal behavior argument, they're completely false. They're misrepresented in the media and they're pushed out as propaganda to slow the adoption of Bitcoin down. And so those are some of the challenges that we're facing today. But in time, with further education, people will begin to understand that this is not the case. And they'll understand the value of Bitcoin and the energy that's being used to create it. And I think that will continue to grow the network. Well, Brian, you have given us a good introduction on the applications of the cryptocurrency, the application, the challenges and the misrepresentation. So I'm going to shift a gear a little and ask you that we noticed that the central bank is doing research on its own digital currency. So what's the difference between the central bank's digital currency and Bitcoin? So the biggest difference at face value is that a central bank digital currency is no different than the current fiat standard. Central banks will create, a, they're often referred to as CBDCs, central bank digital currencies. So a CBDC is a digital version of the US dollar. It does not solve the problem of printing excessive amounts of them or digitally creating new central bank digital currency dollars. It's still going to have the same inflationary mechanism over time where we as consumers will lose our purchasing power. And central bank digital currencies are actually a very concerning thing when you get down in the details with them. The reason that is, is because 
you now have a digital dollar that can be turned off. Your bank account can be turned off if you do something the government doesn't like. Or if you, you know, continue to operate in society in a fashion that the government doesn't agree with, they can go directly to your digital dollar and just turn it off. And then there's nothing you can do about it. So this is something we're actually seeing in certain areas of the world. China is trying to implement a digital yuan. And with the digital yuan, it is going to be associated with an individual's social ranking score. And in China, they have a social ranking score where it's a, it's a five-point scale. And if China elects that your social ranking falls at about around a three or below, you may get slower internet speeds, poor health care. So they're creating this dystopian society of control with authority that is just completely outside the bounds of what's reasonable. And that's what's going to happen, in my opinion, with central bank digital currencies. They're going to create a digital currency, and that will enforce a level of control that we have never seen in history before. It's a very scary thing when you really think about it. With Bitcoin, they can't do that because they don't create Bitcoin. They don't control it. So that's why it's so important that we push forward on a Bitcoin monetary standard as opposed to a central bank digital currency standard. Thank you once again for the time you have given us to introduce Bitcoin and other cryptocurrency concepts and explaining how these currency technologies can be effective in the international marketplace. Before we close, do you have any additional comments or suggestions for our audience on these topics? Yeah, so the only last thing I'd like to close on, and I really appreciate the opportunity to speak with everybody today in your audience, is we're reaching an interesting point right now in society where our politicians and our governments around the world are increasingly lying. And so what I would say is pay attention to what people do and not what they say. And that's very important when it comes to monetary policy, because monetary policy affects all of us and affects the dollars that we work hard to earn. And when you see the actions that are being taken by governments and central banks around the world, you will come to a conclusion faster that Bitcoin is freedom from this existing failing monetary standard. So spend the time, uh, dedicate the energy needed to really understand Bitcoin and these other digital assets. And I think everybody has their own light bulb moment at one point or another. And when it clicks for them, they realize how important and valuable this technology is going to be for the future. So once again, I really appreciate the opportunity to join everyone today. I appreciate your attention and listening, and I hope it was valuable. Thank you for tuning in to the SLU International Business Now Conversations That Matter podcast. We invite you to subscribe to this podcast series so you don't miss any future episodes. To learn more about the Executive Master of International Business Program, please visit BIIB.SLU.EDU. Again, that's BIIB.SLU.EDU.